But that's where the necklace came from, the one I keep in my office. Elizabeth left it behind that night. I'm telling you this for a reason. It has to do with motives. If you took that necklace to a jeweler, he'd say it wasn't worth anything. The beads are only glass, and they're held together by a string. And on some level, I know that's true. But I also know that if a thief tried to take those beads away from me, I'd do everything in my power to stop him. I wouldn't hesitate to kill him, if that's what it took. This story I have to tell, it's not about a necklace, but it is about the motives people have for killing one another. That's a subject I know something about, not least because I'm an editor and people send me stories about killers all the time. My name is David Lugan. Most of the manuscripts that come to me are awful, but some of them have promise. I find the best ones and polish them up and publish them in a mystery magazine called Grey Streets. Maybe it's not surprising, then, that my part in this story begins with a manuscript. The facts are simple enough. I found it on a Wednesday evening in mid-July in the hallway outside my office. That's not unusual. Local authors leave manuscripts out there more often than you'd think. This one was different, though. It came in a plain, unmarked envelope and amounted to fewer than ten pages. It was the story of three murders, two already committed, one yet to come. And it wasn't fiction. There was no signature or byline. The man who wrote the story didn't want to give himself away. He had typed it on a computer and printed it out in a copy shop. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. Elizabeth discovered it later. When I turned the manuscript over to her, I had an outside hope that it might yield some useful piece of physical evidence. Crime labs can do wonders now with hair and fibers, with DNA. I thought there might be fingerprints on the pages, other than my own. But when she sent the manuscript to the lab, it was a dead end. It rendered up no secrets, nothing to tell her who wrote it or what his motives were. If you want to know the answers to those questions, we'll have to go back. Back before that day in mid-July. We'll have to put aside the usual rules, because this is a story that doesn't want to follow them. It has its own ideas. Although it's mine and Elizabeth's too. It doesn't really begin with us. It begins in northern Michigan, in the city of Sault Ste. Marie. It begins in a hotel room. It begins with a notebook. Chapter One The notebook is a simple thing, but elegant. Lined pages bound with thread between soft black covers, small enough to fit in a pocket. Vincent van Gogh made sketches in a notebook like this. Ernest Hemingway jotted lines of terse dialogue in Parisian cafes. Anthony Lark uses his to make a list. Three names in rich black ink. Henry Cormoran, Sutton Bell, Terry Daughtry. The letters flow gracefully. The pen is a waterman, an heirloom from Lark's father. 
Cormoran and Bell should be relatively easy. Both of them live in Ann Arbor. Cormoran in an apartment. Bell in a modest house with a wife and daughter. The wife and daughter complicate things. But on the whole, Lark is unconcerned. He can manage Cormoran and Bell. Daughtry is another story. He's serving a 30-year sentence at Kinross Prison, 20 miles south of Sault Ste. Marie. Lark left his notebook on the hotel bed and padded barefoot to the ice machine down the hall. He caught ice chips in a plastic bag, just a handful, enough to soothe his brow. The headaches had been coming more frequently. He had been fine this afternoon when he drove past the gates of Kinross Prison. He didn't know what he expected to see, maybe something like a fortress, tall buildings of stone, ramparts and buttresses.